Welcome to Come and Reason with Christian psychiatrist and author Dr. Tim Jennings. Together we will reason through complex issues to find evidence-based answers that harmonize scripture, science, and our life experiences. I'm your Come and Reason host, Charles Mills. When it's all over and we leave our homes and return to our workplaces, there will be those among us who have been changed emotionally by the COVID-19 pandemic. We may face what's called post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Here via Skype is Dr. Tim Jennings to explain. Dr. Jennings, what do we need to know that can help us transition back to normality with the least amount of emotional damage? You know, that's a great question, and I think maybe we ought to talk a little about what PTSD is so people understand it and what the symptom looks like. And then we can talk about things people can do that can diminish their risk of PTSD. But, But PTSD is a mental health condition caused by trauma, such as combat, sexual assault, child abuse, or traffic accidents, anything in which one experiences a serious threat to their life or limb. And those who are experiencing this pandemic as a serious threat, this could qualify. Some people are not taking it seriously and it's not stressful to them. Others see this as a real life-threatening situation and therefore this then could merit a condition which could trigger PTSD. You probably know that during World War I it was called shell shock and during World War II it was combat stress. And it wasn't until 1980 that the the term post-traumatic stress disorder was coined. The criteria to actually have the disorder would be an exposure to a real threat to one's health or or well-being, which this could be, as we said. And then the symptoms in the aftermath of a real threat to one's health or well-being would be the following in clusters, um, one or more of the following, recurrent intrusive thoughts or distressing memories, distressing dreams, feeling as if you're having this event happen to you again. So it's it's in reliving the event in some way. Prolonged psychic distress. If you hear a cue, you're feeling overwhelmed or distressed by it. Next group, avoidance of memories. You try not to think about it. You, if somebody brings it up, you don't want to discuss it. Avoidance of reminders about the event. Now, I will say this much. People cannot really have PTSD in the face of the event. They can have an acute stress reaction. The PTSD will come at some point a few months down the road from now after the event resolves. Then some of these things, because um, they're not avoiding reminders right now, they're actually avoiding the virus right now. Right, exactly. (laughs) So, okay. But negative alteration in uh, cognition, such as not remembering certain details or exaggerated negative beliefs about it or persistent distorted thoughts about the consequences. Um, I've seen some of my patients already starting to have this type of exaggerated fear response where they're fearing things that are way out of proportion to what the current actual threat is. Mm-hmm. And this can cause people to lose interest, to isolate, to uh, cut relationships, to feel guilt, and then they can become hypervigilant where they startle easily. They have sleep disturbance. They can actually engage in reckless behaviors because they almost give up and say, what does it matter? Mm-hmm. So these are the types of symptoms that can happen when people have been traumatized. And this COVID, I think, will likely result in people after this clears having some post-traumatic stress syndrome stuff. So 
one of the reasons some people develop PTSD, though, and others don't exposed to the same trauma, there's a couple of reasons. One is biological. We've actually identified a group of genes that in the human genome have more than one type. In other words, it's called a polymorphism. The same gene has subtle differences in it. A group of these genes, if you have the one version versus the other, you're much more prone to have a PTSD response when you're exposed to trauma than another person exposed to the same trauma. This is important for people to understand because if you end up with a post-traumatic stress anxiety problem after the trauma, it's not that you have a weak will. It may be that you have biology that simply causes your brain to respond differently to the same experiences. And that's important for people to know because some people are afraid to ask for help because they feel like it'll indicate they're somehow morally weak when it doesn't indicate that at all. Other factors, though, do include how the event is being processed in real time. If a person, as I mentioned a moment ago, some people don't experience this as a great threat to them personally. They experience this as a potential threat, but they're taking precautions and they feel reasonably safe. And so they don't feel that they're personally under threat. And so versus somebody else who might feel like everything is a threat and they're constantly hypervigilant and afraid they're about to get infected. Mm -hmm. Also, the people who are infected will likely experience a much greater threat level yes. than those of us so far. I haven't been affected, and I pray I'm not, but my stress level likely will be less than a person who has survived it, hmm. if that makes sense to you. Yeah, it does. It does. These biological conditions, was there anything that we did to cause them, or is it, like, is it just full, fully on the genetic level? Those are genetic mutations that are in the genes. All right. So. That's a good question. Other things, though, this current circumstance of what we're dealing with could inadvertently increase the risk of PTSD because one of the factors that make you more vulnerable to PTSD when you're facing a stressor is social isolation, oh. feeling abandoned, feeling alone, feeling helpless, and or feeling betrayed. So to the degree that people are social distancing in a way that makes them feel isolated, alone, abandoned, that actually heightens their baseline anxiety, makes them more fearful. To the degree they can have a support structure, they say socially connected while they're socially distancing, this can actually be protective. This is why in the military, I was the uh, division psychiatrist for the 3rd Infantry Division, and one of the things the military advocates is something called unit morale and and unit cohesion. The tighter those bonds of brotherhood are, those bonds of brotherhood give insulation and or protection from PTSD symptomology when soldiers do face combat. And that's why they train together, they work together, they build those bonds. And so to the degree soldiers are isolated, it makes them more vulnerable. Same thing in real life. So to the degree you can have a family support structure where you talk together about things, you encourage each other, you have a sense of each other's back, you're there to help each other, or a community, a church family. Even if you can't get together physically, you never work together. You send emails checking on each other. You FaceTime or Skype together. Just knowing somebody's there for you if you need them gives you a sense. Can you see how, hey, I know if I need them, they're there for me. That actually calms you. You know, I've heard about morale officers in the military. Now I know why they were there. There was more than just entertain someone, but actually to keep them from having this uh, PTSD so strongly down the road, right? That's right. And uh, and the studies show that even among children that grow up in homes in which there's uh, family cohesion, mm -hmm. families have each other's back, they support each other, they have a, a confidant they can talk to, that those kids grow up healthier with less mental health problems, less trauma problems, less anxiety and drug problems than kids who grow up where they don't have that sense of cohesion. 
adhesions. This is known to be very protective in the way the brain develops. And so we want to have that community, that networking, that support system. Very good. Very good. Well, now, if someone did not have that support system growing up, Dr. Jennings, and I'm sure that you have sat across the desk from many people whose childhood was anything but what we're talking about here, how do they start developing that now when they haven't had it in the past? So I'm not sure that they can develop a family network if the family is dysfunction, Mm -hmm. but they can develop community networks. They can develop friendships. They can develop church family networks and so forth where they develop relationships and where they are known and know others Mm -hmm. and they care about others and others care about them. And so they can do that in their neighborhood, in their peers around their school or or work, but it takes time to develop relationships. So if they don't have it already for this crisis, they're likely not to develop them for this crisis, but they would want to pursue those types of relationships as time moves forward. How do you approach someone who has these thoughts, dreams, and, and cues, and avoidance, and all that? In other words, a fully-blown PTSD patient sitting across from you. Yeah, so there are actual therapies that have been shown to be effective in placebo-controlled trials that are the most effective to help people resolve traumas. Mm-hmm. Understand a couple of truths. History is over, and we can't undo history. Mm-hmm. So people cannot go back in time and rewrite historical events. One of the things that trauma people often try to do is they try to avoid thinking about or remembering the trauma. So they do many things to try to distract themselves. And this leads to much of the dysfunction related to PTSD, whether it's substances or whether it's simply just going from relationship to relationship. But but there's a certain sense where I'm trying to run from my past. And the healthy approach is to recognize, you know what, this trauma event happened to me. I can't change what happened historically but I can heal the damage from it. And so there are therapies that have been shown that help people work through those traumas so they can reprocess them. And when they reprocess those traumas, that results in the brain actually firing new pathways. So we stop firing the fear circuitry and stop experiencing all that emotional and physiological anxiety that we do experience when something startles us. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're frightened. And uh, three of those therapies that have been shown to be effective are prolonged exposure therapy, which involves working with a trained provider to face the feelings or activities that cause this type of fear, the trauma, and work through those to healthy conclusions. Another is called cognitive processing therapy, which focuses on working with the provider, has a specific assignments where you typically will write down things, identify thoughts that you get stuck on, reprocess those thoughts in healthier ways and there's a lot of journaling and writing, but you're working to reprocess and the brain will rewire new pathways and you break some of the automatic fear triggers and you are able to then exercise some control and resolution. And the other is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And during this, you're working with a therapist and you focus on moving your eyes in a certain way while you're talking with the therapist to reprocess. And all of these have the same outcome in that they're helping you change automatic fear-based responses to healthier, non-fear-based responses where you stop living with the emotional pain, even though the historical facts remain the same. And can we end the next couple of minutes here with the one about guilt? Guilt seems to be a big driver in PTSD for a lot of people. How do you deal with guilt? Well, a lot of people have guilt because in the aftermath of the traumas, a person does not like to feel helpless. They don't like to feel victimized. They don't like to feel vulnerable. And so they want to feel like they're in control. They want to feel like they can fix the problem. So their their mind begins to tell themselves a story. They try to make sense about what happened. So they begin to review the events 
events, and and they will often draw conclusions that are fraudulent and false, like it's my fault if I would have taken a different route home, if I wouldn't have stopped at that particular rest stop. In other words, they will create guilt on themselves that is not actually objective. They didn't actually do anything wrong, but it's designed to identify things they can have control over that they can change so that they will never expose themselves to such risk again, rather than the truth that if it was, for instance, a mugging or a, an assault, that this was not because the, the victim did something wrong, but because the perpetrator did something wrong. Children who are exploited or abused will do this to even a greater extent, and they will blame themselves as being often wrong in character. I'm dirty. I'm bad. I'm no good. And and they feel chronic inadequacy and chronic guilt because they've internalized the, the distortion of what the trauma did to the way they feel about themselves. And so the way the therapies not only help them reprocess the trauma, it helps them reprocess the meaning accurately that the person who exploited the abuser is the one who has problems in character, not the person who gets injured by them. Is there a particular resource that you'd recommend from your website, comeandreason.com, on this subject, Dr. Jennings? There's a blog that I've written on PTSD that will have some of these resources outlined in it and some overview of this. And I also discuss some medications that can be used, but medications do not resolve PTSD. Medications can tamper down some of the symptoms a person has, but the real resolution comes in that internal dialogue changing to a fact-based, truth-based, where a person can be at peace with their own life story about what's happened to them, rather than seeking to avoid it or reprocess it in ways that are damaging to themselves. All right, very good. Comeandreason.com is that website, listener. Lots of resources there. Dr. Jennings has made sure that you can be well-informed on this and so many topics when it comes to your mental and physical and spiritual health, all at comeandreason.com. Dr. Jennings, thank you again for sharing with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Charles. And listener, until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Dr. Tim Jennings wishing you God's presence in your life. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for spending time with us today. To continue the journey, I urge you to visit comeandreason.com. Here you'll find many excellent resources to help you gain a deeper understanding of the God we all love and serve. That's at comeandreason.com. This is Charles Mills, along with Dr. Tim Jennings, inviting you to join us the next time we come and reason together. Come and reason.